this morning while we were uh, singing Ferris Lord Jesus, uh, the word stuck out almost like a standing on your wedding day, um, saying those words, your vows to your wife, or your wife saying her vows to you, or saying the words, thee will I cherish, and thee will I honor, thou my soul's glory, joy, and, and crown. All that Christ is doing, and has done, and will do is all so that we would look to Him and just give Him praise and adoration and, and be in awe that we're His glory, that He has rescued us and purchased us and sanctifying us so that we might be His glory, His crown, that He might boast in what He's done for us and that we might boast in what He has done through us for His glory. And we're so mindful this morning that God's just been so gracious to us, to me and my family, and we've been so blessed and so encouraged, and our hearts are they're sad, and yet, obviously what characterizes us more is just a real heart of gratitude and heart of joy, just to have been here and um, have been so blessed by our Lord, and it was humbling just to look at the videos and just watch how, you know, God has grown our church and blessed us so richly and and changed me so much and I got down here and James, you know, same last week, like when he first met me, like Marcus was big and strong and everyone's like last week looking at me like, what are you talking about? Who's you know, it's like James saying when I met Marcus he had hair and you know, I think things have changed. And so I think a lot of time's gone by and we're getting older and I think weaker in the flesh but by God's grace stronger in the spirit and he's taught us so much in our time here, you know, we came from Caucasianville, just white suburbia, Spokane, Washington, and there's like three Asians, and we come to a church that's, you know, predominantly Asian, and all of a sudden we're like kind of the fish out of water, and, you know, there's a big difference between racism and stereotypes, I think you guys understand that. You know, stereotypes is just the norm when you just grow up in a different culture, and you don't know just how things are, and so, you know, I think I came down, and there are certain things I'm glad I never said, you know, I'm sure I wanted to come in some Sunday, and She's like, oh, are you are you Oriental or, you know, just really really bad things like that, and you know, I mean, I I got used at Cornerstone knowing that everyone spoke English, but I would still be out at Disneyland sometimes, and I would wonder if you know that does that person speak English or, you know, what's going on, and I shared that you know boldly because um, when we were at together for the gospel a couple years ago, we walk into this Chinese restaurant, and you know all the flock shepherds pastors are sitting there, and. This lady, this um, this Chinese lady was waiting on us, and she's helping us, and she looks at Francis, and she goes, is this your first time in America? And so, I thought, okay, you know, even other Asians, they look at other Asians, they wonder, do they speak English, and did they just, did they just come here? So, I thought it'd be okay for me to say that. Yeah, and I, uh, you know, I think I probably came in, and, you know, after Sunday, first Sunday here, I'm like, oh, you know what, Joe, after church, you know, I want to teach you a, a new game, it's called basketball. So, yeah, you know, pretty soon I'm on the court getting whooped, and I realized, wow, you know, I didn't, I didn't know Koreans could preach until I heard James preach, and then I didn't know Koreans could play basketball until I saw Joe Pio and Brian Kang playing basketball. So all my stereotypes were kind of thrown into the ground, you know, except for when you go to Round Table Pizza and, you know, I won't say his name, but some brother's like, oh, I'll take three large pizzas and a, a bowl of white rice. <laughs> so that stuff, you know, still throw me off guard a little bit, but... You know, we've learned so much. We've been so greatly blessed. And, you know, we, again, 
as has been said, um, this is our church. You know, you're brothers and sisters, and you know we're full of just thanksgiving and and gratitude is for the friendships we have, trusting, knowing that uh, the friendships we have with you, the fellowship we have, that God's done this. You know, not even just for us. He's hardly done any of this just for you know me and my wife, but that He's forged these relationships, you know, in the gospel for His glory and for the future. You know, for the work that God wants to accomplish here and abroad. And so we trust that our, um, our fellowship and friendship will extend many years, many years and, and beyond you know, geographical proximity, that we will just continue to be united in spirit and intent on one purpose and just saying over and over together on that day, you know, thee will I cherish, thee will I honor. You're my soul's glory, Christ. You're my soul's joy. You are my, my soul's crown. So may that just continue to be the theme of our hearts. May that just continue to be our great boast. It was my desire to preach to you uh, a fresh sermon. I think out of an expression of my love. That was my desire, you know, to not give you leftovers. But if you were with us the last couple of weeks, I think you'd, you'd be highly understanding just that it's been a, a madhouse. And so I come to you kind of with something recycled. But nonetheless, I pray the Word of God is fresh and that it will prove profitable and encouraging. So would you open your Bibles to Matthew 14? Matthew chapter 14. Let me pray. Lord, we praise you this morning for the simplicity and purity of devotion to you, to have not the piano or the guitars be the main instrument, but our hearts to be the main instruments, and to sense the freshness of music arising from our souls, to praise and worship and honor you, to lay our crowns at your feet, to find our glory not in our shame, to find our glory in our boast not in our works, but to find our glory to, to boast that we know You, that You have known us before the foundation of the world, that You have called us to Yourself through Your servant, Jesus Christ, through the Savior, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, who is the God-Man, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is our boast. He is our joy. He is our crown. And we honor You because You are alone worthy of all honor. You are alone worthy of all praise and adoration. We cherish You. and We consider everything to be a loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing You. And we will joyfully even suffer the loss of all things, that we might gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of our own, derived from the works of the law, but that the righteousness which comes solely by faith. O Lord, we lay it all down before You. We bring to You this morning even our sins and our fears, the trials and burdens even which You have ordained, that we might learn to walk by faith and to walk not by sight. So, Lord, I pray and ask You for grace this morning. I pray that my last encouragement to this church would be clarity, that it would be a profit to them, that it would be an encouragement to their hearts and to their souls, that Jesus Christ would be seen this morning as the purpose and the power of our faith. For Your glory, we pray these things in Your name. Amen. Matthew 14, verses 22-23. through 23. And I'm just going to 
walk us through briefly uh, the text. I won't read it straight through, but I'll comment as we go through. And then we'll come back and we'll just look at some principles and some truths that flow from this text. Matthew 14, verses 22 through 33, beginning in verse 22. Immediately, he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Now, the context of this this section here, if we read back, we look beforehand, we would, we would realize that there's been a lot going on. A lot of things that are coming upon our Lord and burdening His heart. One of the chief reasons why He needed to pray is that He just found out the news that His cousin had been killed. His cousin, the famous preacher of Israel, John the Baptist, had his head lopped off by King Herod. And finding out this news, we can imagine that his, our Lord's soul was greatly burdened. And, and in this burden, he needs to get away. He needs to seek the face of his Father. He needs to spend time in prayer. And yet, even as he's trying to make his way, he's, he's overwhelmed. He's inundated by the crowds, by the multitudes of people, by these helpless sheep. And every time he sees these people, every time he sees these needy individuals, his heart goes out to him. His compassion fills his soul, and he cannot help but serve and minister. And so in this pain, in the midst of his own anguish, he begins to minister to these people. He's teaching them. He's helping them. The hours go by, and he recognizes that he cannot send these people back to their homes without giving them something to eat. And so he feeds these 5,000 men and who knows how many women and children. And then after all of this, having done all this ministry with his burden, he now seeks to take this opportunity to spend time alone with his father. He sends the multitudes away, having fed them, and then he puts his disciples into a rowboat and he instructs them to row to the other side, to row across the Sea of Galilee to the place where he's instructed them, where we understand that he will most likely meet them. And so in verses 22 and 23, he does this. He sends them away and he is now alone and he is now praying. Verse 23 says, But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Jesus here, pouring out His heart to the Father, He recognizes that with the death of His cousin, that His own death is coming, that the cross is coming nearer and nearer. He is wrestling with His Father in prayer, no doubt. And yet, this text tells us that the disciples, they're in the midst of the sea, and they're wrestling with creation. The parallel kind of Mark 6 says that the boat was now in the middle of the sea. John chapter 6 tells us that the disciples at this point, they had rowed three to four miles. Right? Now, just remember, they're not in a mastercraft. They're not, there's not a, a jet boat. They're rowing. Right? They're rowing. Mark tells us that they were, they were straining at the oars. The word there literally that they were torturing themselves, trying to control the rowboat, trying to direct themselves to the other side. So they had been rowing for hours. Verse 25 says, And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. The fourth watch of the night is anywhere from 3 to 6 in the morning. And verse 23 told us that Jesus started praying in the evening, which is around 6 p.m. This means that Jesus has been praying for, for nine, up to nine hours. He's been before the, before the throne of grace. He's been speaking with his father for nine hours, which means that this whole time the disciples have been in this rowboat 
for nine hours trying to get to the other side. Now, we can understand that these men, they're seemingly exhausted. These, are, these men are tired. Now, to be fair to these men, let's be mindful. Because most of us look at our hands and, you know, they're not calloused, right? They're not rough. The disciples, these, these were strong men. Right? These were burly guys. A lot of them were fishermen. They're used to long days in the sun. They're used to just having their hands just worked raw with the nets and with the oars. And these men by now, they've been rowing and paddling for nine hours. Their hands are probably blistered. Their backs and muscles are aching. These guys would have been on world's deadliest catch. These are tough guys. And yet we can, we can just imagine if we were sitting in the boat with them, hearing their conversation. These fishermen, these men who know the sea, Right, they know how to uh, interpret the sky. They know when the storm is rolling in. They know when to get off the lake. And Jesus probably tells them, get in the boat, go to the other side. And yet the fishermen, they're probably thinking, this is not a good idea. We probably, you know, it looks like a storm's coming in. We probably shouldn't do this. And they're out in the middle of the lake now, and they're not getting anywhere. And Peter's, you know, and John are like, why do we listen to Jesus? He's a carpenter. He doesn't know the sea. He doesn't know the ocean. Now we listen to Jesus, and now look where we're at. And yet, it's in the midst of this storm, it's in the midst of this most likely internal struggle, and this external storm, that the Scripture says Jesus, He comes walking to them. In this supernatural, miraculous event, Christ is walking upon the water. Now, we can only imagine here, this is not, you know, Lake Placid, this is not smooth glass, this is not water skiing weather. This is a storm. The waves are high. And somehow Jesus is walking upon these waves. He's walking upon this tumultuous ocean. Verse 26 says that when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. They were terrified. Their hearts and minds were stirred up into a panic when they saw this being walking on the water. Literally, the Greek says that that they said it is a fan, it's a phantom, it's a phantasma, it's a, it's a ghoul, it's a ghost, it's some, some spirit thing that's coming towards us to do us harm. Right? This demon is coming at us. And then it says they cried out. In the, in the Greek, it's they shrieked. They were shrieking. So this isn't just a cartoon. This isn't a, a horror movie. This is, this is real. There was intense fear in their souls when they saw this being walking to them on the water. But immediately, verse 27, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And so at the same time as the disciples saw this being, this being their Lord, He saw them. And as soon as our Lord, He, he saw and recognized the terror on their faces and he, he knew the terror in their heart, He comforts them. He says, take courage, it is I. Literally, in the Greek, He just says, I am. I am is coming to you. The Good Shepherd is walking towards you. Something greater than a mere phantom is here. And yet here is perhaps some irony where their shrieking was appropriate. It was more than a ghost. It was more than a ghoul. It is the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Holy One of Israel. God is walking towards them. God incarnate, without sin, walking towards sinners. They should have been afraid. 
And yet Christ comforts them. In verse 28, Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, Peter is seen here as the first one to speak forth directly to Jesus and from quivering lips expresses at least some faith, saying, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you. And he, Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Now what I would note for us here is that we see this mixture of humanity, right? Fallen humanity with faith. Sinful flesh mixed with some inkling of confidence in the Savior. Now, we cannot doubt that Peter had faith in Christ for a couple reasons. First reason is simply that he's walking on water. This is faith here in action. He trusted in Christ and he steps out of the boat and he begins to do what no other full human has ever done. He's walking on the water. And yet again, the irony here is that he begins to sink. He's walking towards God. He is walking towards God on water. And he should have walked the other way. He should have ran across the water back to the shore to get away from the the Holy One. But instead of fearing Christ, instead of being, instead of cowering in the boat and saying what he had said early, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. He starts walking towards the Lord. And yet, instead of walking, instead of being full of fear at Jesus, he takes his eyes off Christ and he begins to fear the wind. He begins to fear the waves. He begins to fear the water. And therefore, he begins to sink. Now, we have to remember again that these are not wimpy breakers. And Peter was certainly an excellent swimmer. So this is not, you know, Peter sinking, saying, I can't, Jesus, I can't swim. He's singing into this incredible storm, and he knows that he's going to drown. The waves are going to come over him. There's no way for him to rescue himself. He begins sinking, and he cries out, Lord, save me. Yet we know he had faith because he began to walk. And the second reason we know that he had some faith is verse 31. Because immediately Jesus stretched out his hand. He took hold of him, and he said to him, You of little faith... Why did you doubt? And so the second reason we know that Peter had faith is because our Lord tells him very clearly. You have little faith. He doesn't say you have no faith. He doesn't commend him for a great faith. But but he can say to Peter, you have little faith. When it got in the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. I want this morning for us to learn what I believe Christ wanted Peter to learn and the rest of the disciples to learn. I believe the essence of what we learn from this text is that Jesus Christ, he is the purpose and that he is the power of faith. He is the purpose and he is the power of faith. He is the point of faith. He is what faith is fixed on. He is the one we believe in. 
He is the purpose of faith. But He's also the power of faith. He is the, he is the reason that we believe. And He is the reason that we can do what He asks us to do. He is the reason that we can do what, apart from Christ, we cannot do. John 15, you know, abide in Me and you'll bear much fruit. This is uh, John 15 in action. This is the narrative. This is a living illustration of what Christ is explaining in John 15. You want to understand what it means to believe? You want to understand what it means to abide? Here is what Christ explains with this incredible story of keeping our eyes fixed upon Him. I personally find in this text exactly what I need as we take our leave of of this beloved church to serve Christ in a foreign land. I find in this text that Jesus Christ is absolutely sovereign over every detail of life. And that the purpose of all of life is to lead us to Christ. And the purpose of all of life is to help us to learn to trust in Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the purpose and the power of faith. And so I just want to, this morning, give a few uh, principles or truths that are derived from what we might learn about Peter's experience what Peter learned about his Lord, what Peter learned about his own heart. And the first thing that I think that Peter would have learned, and the first thing that we need to learn this morning, is that faith believes that opposition and adversity are absolutely ordained by Christ. Faith believes that opposition and adversity are absolutely ordained by Christ. What I'm saying here then is that verse 22 is not as casual as it looks. Jesus Christ isn't just saying, Peter, get in the boat, go across, I'll catch you guys later. It's good for us to remember that the author of this gospel is Matthew, that Matthew was one of the disciples, and that Matthew's in this boat. He's writing this, having had first-hand experience, having watched everything with his own eyes. And I'm sure that 30 years later when he, he writes this book, He's thinking back to what happened there and he's learning again. His own heart's being refreshed as he remembers what he was learning at that moment and what he has continued to learn as he reflects on who Jesus Christ is. It must have been humbling for him to to write to you and me that when he saw Jesus at first, he was screaming like a girl. That he was full of fear and trembling. But it must have been profound for him to remember even years later how Christ had ordained this very specific event to teach them who Jesus was and to teach them what it meant for them to trust in Him. This storm was no accident. Christ isn't sending them the other side and then coming to them on the water just to show off. He has ordained all these events. This, This storm was not an accident. We even see at the very end that as soon as they got in the boat, the storm stops and just ceases. That Christ is in control of everything that is happening. Christ sent His disciples into the midst of the storm on purpose. He sent His sheep into a situation which could have very well been their demise. Could have been their destruction. He sends them to the hard places. He sends His disciples. He sends, if you will, all of His sheep into the storm. He sends us to the places where all fleshly strength and dependence is swallowed up in the face of fear. Even the strongest of men behold their weakness when they are brought to an utter end of themselves. 
And helping the strong to see that they are weak is the first step to beholding Christ for who He is. Christ ordains opposition in life so that we will come to an end of trusting in our own flesh. He brings us adversity so that we might see that Christ is all-powerful and not man. Until there's adversity, there's no need for faith. Until there's trials, there's, there's nothing such as temptation. Christ purposefully allows the evils of this world to back us to the edge of the cliff until there's nowhere else for us to stand. All of you have experienced this. And we learned this over and over in the Old Testament that this is the lesson that Israel learned and this is the lesson that, that every Christian still has to continuously learn. That God in His sovereignty, He brings us to an end of ourselves. He brings us to, the, to our wit's end so that we might see we've been putting confidence in our flesh and that having been brought to absolutely nothing in ourselves, we have nothing to cling to but Jesus Christ. We saw this in, in, in Genesis. We saw this in Exodus. Where God, He rescues His people who have been brought to an end of themselves. He delivers them from the hand of oppression. And then He, he brings them out into the wilderness. And yet as soon as He rescues them, what does He do? He, he, he allows them to be backed up to the end of, a, end of an ocean. To an end of the their route. And now Israel is coming at them. And this time Israel is not coming at them to want to oppress them. This time Israel is coming at them to kill them. Egyptians are coming at Israel. And yet, God, what does He do? He rescues them. He brings them to an end of themselves so that they would, they would trust in God and not trust in their flesh. He rescues, he rescues them. This is what Christ does for us. He saves us from a bad situation, and yet at times He, he brings us even to a worse situation. Why? So that we would be reminded again, that we would learn again, that we have nothing to trust in our flesh. That our only confidence must be in Christ. Where there is no adversity, there is no need for faith. Where there is no weakness, there is no cry for help. Where there is no recognition of sin, there is no need for a Savior. Jesus Christ sends the sheep to the storm so that their salvation would be awesome. He breaks us down to build us up. My encouragement is, let's be reminded this morning, this storm is ordained for us, what you are going through. Isaiah 45, 6-7, I am the Lord, there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Genesis fifty twenty is, as for you, Joseph was able to say, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result. That is to preserve many people alive. And then Romans 8.28, For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Faith believes that opposition and adversity are absolutely ordained by Christ. Therefore, secondly, having learned that lesson, we can learn that faith in Christ frees you from fear. Faith in Christ is what frees us from our fear. When the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water, they were terrified and said it's a ghost. They cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, it is I. 
Do not be afraid. Now, why do the disciples again, why do they shriek out in fear? Because it's a ghost, right? Now, none of us in here have, have wrestled or fought with a ghost, but we pretty much know what would happen if we did. We would lose, right? You pick up the oar in the boat, you start swinging at this demon, the spirit thing, and it's going through his head, and nothing's happening, and, you know, you can, you've seen enough horror movies to know what's going on. Disciples never saw a horror movie, but they know that oar is not going to do anything. And they're shrieking out in fear. They're crying out. Now, my question is, let me just pull this out of here. Why would, what would give them cause to not be afraid? What would have given them cause to not be afraid is if they knew, oh, this is no problem. There's 12 of us. We could take this guy. In other words, what does confidence arise from? Confidence arises when you have control. Confidence arises when you're in charge. Confidence arises when you know that you can handle it. When you know that it's not a big deal. Confidence arises when you're in charge. And confidence arises when you're secure. Bad illustration, but let's, take, let's use the car. Right? You're in the car. You're on the freeway. You're driving. You have a passenger. You're going 70 miles an hour, and you come to a curve, and the yellow sign gives you the suggested speed limit of 40. What do you do? You floor it, right? What does the guy next to you do? He grabs the handle for dear life. Now, you're like, oh, this is awesome. We're just going to take this corner, right? And you have all this confidence. Why? Because you're at the wheel. Why is the other guy afraid? Because he's not in charge. Because his life is entrusted to you. Fear, all fear, comes from lack of control. Fear is the result when you're not in charge. You know what what a control freak is? He's someone full of fear. When we don't have control, if we're not at the helm, if we're not in charge, our hearts are full of fear. Because we trust in ourselves. Yet Christ, when He brings us to a place where there's no one to trust in, but there is nothing else to arise in. He helps us see our fear, and that brings us to our helplessness. And this is what Christ is doing. He brings Peter, he brings the disciples to an end of themselves. They're out of control. They can't do anything. They're helpless. This is again why Christ brings adversity to us. Our problem is that we like to think that we're people of faith. We think that we trust in the Lord, that we walk with Him, and we put our confidence in Him. But the truth of the matter is, our confidence is most often in ourselves and in our perceived strength. And so Christ has to prove to us over and over again, you have little faith, Marcus. No, Lord, I trust in you. No, Marcus, watch. You're not in control. What are you going to do now? Full of fear. Adversity strikes. Not in control, what happens? Full of anxiousness. Saint, I know for you, likewise, multitude of fears, multitude of trials that are plaguing you at this very moment. And I'm telling you that Christ is exactly doing this. He has ordained these trials intricately for you so that you would see His power. That you would see His glory. That you would see that He is strong. Fear is fixed by focusing on Christ. Fear is fixed by focusing on Christ. It is at this point in the storm that Peter forgot about the storm. 
He forgot about nine hours of rowing and blistered hands. He forgot about drowning and his soaked cold skin. In the midst of the storm, he saw Christ coming to him, and in faith he wanted to go to Christ. For a, for a brief moment, his fear is removed, and his heart is filled with awe and longing to be with Christ who is coming to him. And he wants to go to Christ. And yet, this was short-lived. Like Peter, our faith has a long way to go. Peter began to learn that he must only walk by faith. But he also learned a third, third lesson. Thirdly, that faith in Christ enables obedience to Christ. Faith in Christ enables obedience to Christ. Verses 28 and 29. Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Now, Peter had to ask Jesus if he could come to him on the water. Why? Because Peter can't just choose. He can't just decide, I'm going to walk on the water. He can't just decide, I'm going to do what's supernatural and what's miraculous. Because it's impossible. And so he has to ask Jesus. He knew that unless Christ enabled him, he could never walk upon the water. And so here we learn that obedience requires faith because Christ requires us to do the impossible. And we know this by now, but need to learn it again. Obedience requires faith because Christ requires us to do the impossible. If obedience at times did not seem impossible, there would be no need for faith. But Christ, He asks us in our Christian life to do what's impossible. Say, Lord, I can't do this. I can't face this trial. I can't, I can't do what the Bible is asking me to do. And He says, that's right. You can't do it apart from me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you cannot obey the Bible. What is but the flesh and the spirit, right? Do not walk in the flesh. Walk according to the spirit. In other words, don't walk in your power. The spirit is the power of God. Walk in the power of God. You cannot obey. You cannot trust. You cannot hope apart from the grace of God. And yet, because Christ has come to us and enabled us, he has every right to ask you and I to do what is impossible because he will enable us to do it. This will make a little more sense in, in point number four. Point number four is that faith means staying focused on Christ. Faith means staying focused on Christ. In verse 30, But seeing the wind, Peter became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Walking towards Christ on the water was at this point the greatest event of Peter's life. It was his desire to be with Christ. He wanted to be with his Lord. But even we see here that the greatest goal can be met with distractions. This is our daily battle. He grants to us our heart's desire to pursue him and to be with him. And yet almost as immediately as we have begun, we hit difficulties which snatch our vision of Christ and his glory. But here is part of the heart of this issue here. We belittle Christ when we make our struggles more worthy of our attention and focus than Christ Himself. What could belittle the glory of Christ more than saying with our lives that my problems are bigger than my God? You understand this? 
when we become overwhelmed with the sovereign trials that Christ has brought into us, when we become overwhelmed with these trials, we're saying, my problems are bigger than my God. These trials are bigger than Christ. This may be true for the world, but not for us. For us who walk towards Christ, to fear the world more than the King is ludicrous. He controls the waves. He controls the wind. He controls the very cells and fibers of our body. He controls all disease. He is sovereign over all traffic lights. Everything that's going on, Christ is in charge of. It has all been ordained. So we must stay focused on Christ in the midst of the trial that He's ordained. That's their purpose. Fifthly, faith in Christ must correspond to the power of Christ. And this will make more sense. Faith in Christ must correspond to the power of Christ. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand. He took hold of him. And he said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? What was he doubting? If you think about what was what was Jesus really confronting in Peter? He was confronting Peter's beliefs about Jesus. And he was saying, Peter, what's happening to you right now is manifesting your true innermost thoughts of what you think about me. That your faith does not match the reality of who I am. Your faith should be equivalent to the power that resides in me. So this is a simple principle, but you know, your confidence in something should only be as great as the power of, of that object. Right? So at this time, you know, people are hesitant to put a lot of money in the bank. Rightly so. We're we're careful. We're looking at finances carefully. We're thinking, should I trust this? Right? Should I not trust this? Maybe a better illustration, right, to show that the object of faith should be equivalent to that person's ability. Let's say I'm, you know, I'm, I'm uh, hiking in the mountains with my family, right? me and Amy and the girls, and we fall into a crevasse, right? And the only way out is to climb out. And so I, you know, MacGyver that I am, have my rope, throw it up there. I'm like, ah, I can climb, I can climb out. So I climb the rope and I get out. Right? But they can't climb out. So I, I climb back down and I say, Lydia, right? Daddy, he's going he's gonna to save you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you out of this crevasse, right? So put your arms around me, hold on to me, and we're going to climb out of here. Now, I think I can do it, right? You go down to Santa Monica, and there's that 30-foot rope, you know, climb up the rope. It's a good time. I think Lydia put her arms on my back, maybe. You know, Sophie, no problem. Chloe, no problem, right? I could do it. But then Amy, you know, Amy comes to me. I'm like, Amy, hop on. Put your arms around me. I'm going to pull you out of this crevasse. I'm going to, we're, we're going to climb up there. Don't, don't worry. And she would look at me and say, Marcus, you're nuts. Right? I love you. I respect you. But I'm not a moron. Right? Right? You can't possibly pull both of us with your own two arms out of this pit. And at that point, that's not lack of faith. That's wisdom. It's wisdom for her to not put confidence in me who can't do something like that. But here, when Peter is sinking, he is saying, Jesus, you can't do it. He took his eyes off of Christ. He began to fear his his petty problems. 
He is saying before Christ Himself, I don't believe you are all that trustworthy. I don't believe you are all that powerful. And to put it bluntly, as I've said before, Peter sunk because his Christology stunk. Peter sunk because his Christology stunk. He sunk because he had a low view of Jesus Christ. He had a low view of the authority and the power and the majesty of Jesus Christ. My saints, this is the same for us. If you think of your trial this morning and you think about how you are responding, think of your own faith in the midst of your adversities. If you are sinking, if you are floundering, you have one major issue. And let me just get to the heart. I hope this pierces the heart. If you are a believer and you are drowning, it is because your Christ is an idol. It is because the Christ that you are believing in is not the Christ of the Bible. It is a Christ that is formed by the image and the thought of man, not the Jesus Christ of the universe. Believers who are sinking have a Jesus that's a mini-me Shetland pony, a Jesus that fits in your pocket. You have, a, you have faith that is as big as... You have, a, you have a Jesus that is as big as your faith. That's what I need to say. You have a Jesus that is as big as your faith rather than having faith that is as big as Jesus. That's the Christian life. That our faith should be massive. That our faith should be mighty. Our confidence should be secure and big. Why? Because our Christ is big. Because our Christ is massive. Because our Christ is mighty. This is why it's grace for us to be made weak. That when we're weak, then we're made strong. Because when we're weak, we see that Christ is all-powerful. Let me just make an application regarding this principle. I think there could be numerous ones. But let me make an application here regarding holiness in the Christian life. I think this is personal for me, but I'll preach it to you as well. Many of us, all of us, are struggling with the same sins over and over and over. We're drowning, we're mired in the muck, we're mired in guilt, we're mired in the plague of sin. Some of you, you're aware of this and you're even broken by it. You weep at night because you can't move on. You're like Esau. You sought repentance with tears, but cannot find it. But do you know why you haven't changed? You know what the root of not being to conquer sin is? It's looking in the wrong place. It's looking inward to yourself, to your flesh, or it's looking outward, some to another book. Right or to your pastor or to someone else, but it's, you're not looking upward. That may sound like so oversimplified, but that's the heart. If you're mired in sin and you're not defeating it, it's because you're, not, you're looking inward at yourself, you're looking outward at some other means, but you're not looking to the singular source and power that enables you to conquer sin and to live the Christian life. Can you imagine if Christ would have allowed Peter to keep walking on the water even though he looked away and started fearing the waves? Like, just, just talk with me here. Here's Peter, and he, all of a sudden he's, he fears drowning. He fears the wind and the waves. 
and his heart's agitated and full of fear, and yet he keeps walking on the water. What would have happened? Pride would have filled Peter's heart. Pride would have filled Peter's heart. Because then he would have realized, you know what? I can do this without looking at Christ. If we can conquer sin, if we can put our lust, if we can put our greed, if we can put our pride, our pursuit of power and and glory, if we can put that to death without Christ, without faith in Him, then we don't need Christ. Then faith is superfluous. Then I am the purpose and power of faith. Then I can live this kind of miraculous life in my own flesh. But the reality is that the reason that we are sinking and drowning is because we're not focused on Christ. In the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and we'll behold Christ and we'll be like Him and we will be free from all sin. Why? Because we'll have Him perfectly in our view. Our eyes will no longer be able to be taken off of Christ. And yet, in this life, at this time, sanctification means pursuing Christ and striving, not in our flesh, but by the Spirit, to keep our eyes fixed upon Him. To keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the power of faith, where He, in His grace, He reaches out. And even, let me back up and say this, saints. Here is the grace. Even as we're drowning, even in the midst of our weak faith, what does Christ do? Even though we, we sink over and over again, even though I falter and fail, and even though daily I'm recognizing my faith is so weak and so pathetic, Here's the mercy of Christ. He will never ever say, Peter, I've pulled you out of the drink three times now. This time, I'm just going to let you sink. This time, I'm just going to let you drown. Christ will never ever let you go under. He will never ever let you drown. But He will use trials to bring you to an utter end of yourself. A well-known illustration, right? But when a person is in the ocean and they're, they're fighting to stay afloat and they're, they're drowning or they need help, the lifeguard, he will swim out to that person, and, but he will keep his distance and he will wait for that person has extended all of their power and their energy. Because if he moves in too soon, that person who's panicking and flailing, he will latch on to the lifeguard for dear life, and he will take them both under. So the lifeguard, he waits until that person has no more strength left, until he's at his complete end of himself, until he's almost about to go under and drown. And it's in that point the lifeguard approaches that man, puts his hands on him, and he pulls him in, and he takes him to the shore. Christ, He will let you go down. He will let you fall. He will let you stumble. And in that moment, you will see you've been trusting in your flesh. And yet, here's where the grace is. That with His mighty arms, He reaches down. He pulls us up. Never will He say, that's it, last straw. He will in His grace say, you a little faith, why did you doubt in me? Why did you trust yourself? Why did you put confidence in your flesh? Look at me, Marcus. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Keep your eyes fixed upon me. I am the purpose. I am the power of faith. And what we learn from this, even in our sinking, and because of our sinking, and when Christ rescues us, and when we again for the hundredth time fail and yet Christ rescues us, 
He forgives us, shows His kindness and His mercy towards us. We learn afresh this last principle. That faith's purpose is worship. The ultimate end of all this, the ultimate end of Christ's plan, is His glory. Verse 32, when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped Him, saying, You are certainly God's Son. When Christ and Peter got back into the boat, they're not congratulating Peter. They're not saying, Peter, do you know what you just did? You are the first man who's completely man, right? Jesus Christ is God. He doesn't count. Jesus, Peter, you're fully flesh. You are walking on the water. And John's like, Peter, I got it all on my iPhone. And I'm going to upload it on YouTube tonight. And it's going to go all over the world. And you're going to be famous. They weren't, they weren't congratulating Peter. When they recognized who Christ was, when they saw His power, even in this boat, their, their hearts were full of awe and they worshipped Christ. They saw Christ now for who He was and they bowed low and they worshipped Jesus. Saints, this is what, this is how it is for us. This is the ultimate end of this text. This is the ultimate end of the Bible. That God in His grace, He will allow us perpetually to flounder and to fail and to sink. And yet every time He will pull us out of the drink, He will set our feet firmly upon the rock. And every time our response should be to worship God. You've been gracious to me, Father. Christ, You've been so kind to me. And yet this is the point of all this, is to see the mighty power of Christ. Faith is not concerned merely with what we accomplish, but why we accomplish it. Faith's goal is not to go out and live a radical Christian life so we can exalt ourselves. No, faith does radical things in the power of Christ for the purpose of Christ. And all that we may accomplish, here we are entering into a month of celebrating God's work at Cornerstone Bible Church. That's what it is. A month of celebrating and saying, not to us, not to us, but to your name, give glory. And that month of celebration will be but a a little smidgen. Where in the end, myriads and myriads and multitudes and millions of believers will surround the, the throne. Millions of believers, each one of them who had been just struggling with sin and temptation and pride and, and failing over and over and over. And yet, having been rescued over and over again by the grace of God, will stand around the throne saying, not to us, but to your name, give glory. Thank you, O Lord, for your grace. Thank you for your kindness. So what do we do with this this morning? How do we... I think, we've, I think we have general application. I think we know. Let me just give some more general applications. First application is this. If you're not a real believer... If you're not a true believer, then your faith is in something in someone else. It's not in Christ. And you may, for a brief while, be able to pull yourself out of the drink of that other thing or object may. In the end, you will utterly drown. In the end, you will utterly go down for the final time, never to come up again. Or maybe 
if God is being gracious to you, you recognize that your boat is already sunk. The boat is gone. You're drowning. And now the timing is set. It's perfect. Now is the time for you to see that you cannot help yourself. You cannot deliver yourself from your own problems. You cannot save yourself from yourself for your own destructive sinful habits, for your own enslavement to sin. You have been finally brought to your last breath. And you are able with that last breath to utter only one thing. And what will it be? Will it be just us? Will it be a scream of panic and fear and defeat? Or will you cry out to the, for the mercy of God? Save me. I'm sinking. If you will cry out to Jesus Christ, if you will cry out to Him, He will save you. It, it's so crucial for us to understand that, that this lesson Peter learned was, was really only a precursor to the greatest lesson that Peter le- would learn. His greatest need was not to be rescued from the sea. His greatest need was to be rescued from his sin. And in this, this God-man who walks upon the water, he did far greater miracles. His greatest miracle of all is that he went to the cross and he miraculously bore our sins in his body. He is able to pay in those three hours on the cross what you would be paying for for all of eternity. This is the greatest miracle. And if you will not believe in Christ because He could turn water into wine, if you will not believe in Christ because He could raise others from the dead, if you will not believe in Christ because He could walk upon the water, will you believe Christ because He was able to pay for sin on the cross? That is the greatest purpose of faith. That is the greatest power of faith. That Jesus Christ can save sinners. That He alone can save sinners. If you are not a believer, recognize that His hand is extended. You must recognize you have been brought to an end of yourself. Cry out to Him. If you are a believer, and if you are in a state of perhaps weak faith, or if you find yourself in, in what I would call the doldrums, Doldrums is a term that early sailors used for a certain sailing condition where there was, they were on the boat in the middle of the ocean and all of a sudden the wind stopped. And the wind would completely cease. And it, would, and it could go on, the doldrums could go on for days and weeks, sometimes for months. And when a ship and her crew found themselves in to be in the doldrums, and it continued to go on for that, they began to realize that they were in serious and grave danger. When you find yourself in the midst of the doldrums, you're on this boat, fresh water is running low, your food is running out, pretty soon you're dehydrated, scurvy sets in, you start hallucinating, you go mad. Some of us find ourselves the doldrums. There's no wind in the sails. There's no fresh water. There's no wind. The new wind will only be blown in by the mouth of the one who saved you in order that you might be infatuated with his glory. The doldrums is not about us just sitting around and waiting and twiddling our thumbs. It's about looking to Christ. That's the answer. That's what moves us forward is to look upwards and to behold and be reminded that Jesus Christ is the purpose and power of faith. That you're in the doldrums, that I'm in the doldrums because of dead orthodoxy, 
because we've grown numb to who Jesus Christ is and what He has done. Let's refresh ourselves and be mindful of who this person is and the work that He's accomplished. Be mindful this morning that Jesus Christ is the purpose and power of faith. I gave this application last time and I, let me just give it again. Very simple, practical advice. If your heart is numb, your faith is cold, do this for like a month. Stop reading Christian books. Stop reading practical Christian books. Stop reading Christian books about the Christian life. Stop reading books about dating. Stop reading books about marriage. Stop reading, you know, Christian finances. Just stop reading Christian practical living books and just read something on Jesus Christ. Just read a theology on Jesus Christ and ask God to warm and stir your hearts through the glory of Christ. Ask some of the pastors, right? Read B.B. Warfield's The Personal Work of Christ. Uh, One of my favorites, Peter Lewis, The Glory of Christ. John Stott, The Cross of Christ. John Owen, The Glory of Christ. Ask me afterwards. And of course, the greatest books of all, the gospel. Come to the Bible, not just saying, how can I fix myself? Come to the Bible, not saying, I need to do this devotion so I can help myself. No, come to, to God's word so you might behold Christ and you might worship. And pray. Father, our response now is to bow low in worship and to say truly you are the Son of God. It's to worship you and to exalt you and to magnify you and to thank you that in your grace you constantly rescue us from the drink. You are the reason why we continue to stand even. You are the reason why we even have any inkling of faith at all. And that though our faith is weak, our Savior is strong. Oh Lord, give us grace. Give this church much grace to be fixed upon you. That we would never become distracted. That we would become enamored with ourselves or what's being done here. That Lord, even the good things can become a distraction. Even these good things in life can actually become ways which pull us away from being fixed upon you. Oh Lord, help us to stay near to you. Help us to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus and on his cross and on what he has done. And then in the end, we might give you all praise and all glory and adoration. For you alone are worthy of it. Again, we pray these things in your name.